Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, which is New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phelps. I got a good show for you this week. We are going to get ready for the start of the college basketball season opening night on next Tuesday, November 9th. We'll be joined by the host of the Seeing Red Podcast, Troy Moriello. We did the entirety of March Madness together last year. We're going to preview the college hoop season. That's coming up in just a bit. We'll do our Week 9 NFL picks. and will be joined by Giant fan Justin Diaz to... Break down the Giants. Got off a loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. And that's a game they could have had, folks. Bad coaching, undisciplined penalties, critical turnovers. All that happens. The Giants find themselves 2-6. and six. And we'll talk to just about that and make our picks. We're also going to get to the end of the show. This is two-minute drill. I catch you what's going on with the scandal of the Chicago Blackhawks. And it's ugly. It's not getting enough attention. I'm going to shed some light on it in the two-minute drill. But we'll get all started with our opening tip where we're going to take a look at breaking down the end of the World Series here. We have a new champion in Major League Baseball right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here, opening tip, talking about the World Series, and not the result I wanted. The Atlanta Braves end up winning in six games, close it out, 7 nothing victory over the Houston Astros to win their first World Series title since 1995. And as a Mets fan, this sucks, because this is now the second time in three years I've had to watch one of my division rivals win a World Series draw. The Nationals won in 2019. The Braves won this year. The Mets have gone the longest in that division without winning a World Series title. Remember, the Marlins won in 03. The Braves have won 95. Now they won again. The Phillies win in 08. The Mets have won since 86. They had the longest drought in the NLEs, ninth longest in the league. So not fun, but the Braves, it just goes to show you what you learn by going for it because it's a team that was down and start out for the Ronald Acuna Jr. Mike Soroka never came back from the Kelly's injury. He suffered in 2020. They saw the NLEs as a land of opportunity because the Mets couldn't put the division away. They said, you know, we're close. We're going to go for it. But they made some trades. They brought in Adam Duvall, Eddie Rosario, Jorge Soler, Jock Peterson. Uh, from the Pirates, they brought their closer, Richard Rodriguez. They went and made moves. So they saw the division was there. They got in. They got hot. They won. Credit to them. They took care of business. They won the title. Interesting offseason for the Astros looming ahead because obviously they have Carlos Correa hitting free agency and sounds like he's probably not going to be back there because he's going to want a bigger deal than they want to give. Zach Granke's a free agent. Justin Verlander's going to be a free agent. He didn't pitch this year. Could be some turnover there, but as far as the Astros are concerned, disappointing end for them. They may have credit getting there. The Braves took care of business. The big takeaway from this series, however, is that baseball as an entertainment product is broken. And it's like I talked about the podcast a couple weeks ago. The lack of emphasis on the starting pitching is a major, major problem. We saw plenty of 
parades relievers walking in the mounds, coming in, throwing hard, striking guys out, walking people, getting out homers. And what's all we get? We get three true outcome reliance. We get longer games, nothing happens, and the product becomes more boring. World Series games start at 8 o'clock, often end after midnight on the East Coast. The clincher started at 8.07, ended about 11.30 East Coast time. That's no way to grow the game. The youngest generations of fans are not able to stay up to 11.30 at night watching this game, saying, I want to watch baseball going forward. They're not going to do that. MLB knows they have a problem here, the pace of play. They've been trying things to fix it. They've been doing that for the last few years. We've had the three-batter minimum introduced. We had the extra inning rule introduced because they don't want these games dragging on for five hours. We had the seven-inning double headers. Those are all temporary fixes. They are temporary fixes of the problem. Another one would be the one that's in Florida on Twitter. Oh, you got to start the game at seven. Yeah, that's great. And then the game ends at 11 instead of midnight, but you're not really doing anything with the case of play. The big issue, in my opinion, is you need to reevaluate the starting pitching in the game. And I want to be clear here. The teams themselves are doing nothing wrong. They are playing within the rules of the game that is given to them. It is not the team's goal to entertain us at home. It is the team's goal to win. And these analytics say that the best way to do this is to have your pitchers throw hard, spin the ball, do it for as long as they can, then get them out before the batter can adjust and bring in somebody else to start the process over again. The teams are going to do what the teams need to do in order to win baseball games. The league is the one that has to say, this product is boring. We need to change the rules to fix it so that the product becomes more entertaining. There are two ways this could be done, in my opinion. Number one, you have to shrink these pitching staffs down. We've seen too many times, I see in America League where teams have to DH or disposal. 14-man pitching staffs, 13-man pitching staffs, and all of a sudden just shuttling the levers in and out. We're going to use the opener just to make more analytical sense. There was going to be a 13-man pitcher limit put in prior to the 2020 season before Kobe came and disrupted everything and everything went out the window. I think I need to go back with an eye on dropping it to at least 12 in a couple of years. Fewer pitchers, teams that need the guys on the staff to cover more innings. You can't just say, oh, we're going to have 13 guys at eight relievers, five starters. If we go a bullpen day, great. You're going to need your stars to get deeper into the game so that you don't destroy your bullpen. That will also help because that's going to have as many parades of flamethrowing relievers coming out there, throwing hard because you can need these guys to throw strikes and pitch to contact. That will create more action in the game. The other is an idea that friend of the podcast, Jason Stark, has pitched recently a couple of years. And one he thought, actually mentioned, I think, on this podcast last year, the idea of the double hook. The idea of adding some NL-style strategy to the interval universal DHR because you know it's coming in the next CBA. How the double hook works is every team starts the game with the DH hitting for the starting pitcher, which solves the problem you have of pitchers getting hurt hitting in the National League. You had that happen a couple times this year with Jacob DeGrom. That's not going to happen. The idea is the DH spot only exists when the starting pitcher is in the game. When the starter comes out, the DH comes out, and that becomes a regular pitcher spot. It means you have to pinch hit every time the that spot, the line comes up again. That is a big deterrent to teams who are saying, you know, we're just going to bullpen and get three innings our starter. That kills the opener, which is the evolution of the bullpenning. Because why would you bullpen if you're going to lose one of your top hitters after just an inning? Say the Yankees say, we're going to try the opener. Fine, you can do that. 
The price is Giancarlo Stanton, who DH is out at the end, out of the game after one at bat, and you have to pinch hit every time up. That's not a sustainable way of playing the game. That's going to be a way it's going to force teams to develop their pitchers to get outs and not just throw hard. Less velocity will mean more contact. It will mean more exciting plays being made by these athletes in the field who are just standing there watching the pitcher and the hitter square off, not really having much go on. I think that has to be done. All this is happening, meanwhile, with the backdrop of potential work stoppage here. If the owners and players cannot get a new CBA done by December 2nd, we have a lockout coming because the owners are not going to take the chance of the players dictating to them, like, you know, we'll go on strike. We'll keep playing under the old deal, but we'll go on strike when it's opportune time for us. The owners will go to immediately to a lockout on December 2nd. There's no deal done. And no CBA means no free agency, no trades, no winter meetings. You have to start a camp delayed until this deal is signed. So things are up in the air. Things get messy. Avoiding that works out is important. Solving these economic issues. We had a lot of them. We talked ad nauseum about how teams don't go out to win, how you have teams like the Pirates and the Orioles actively tanking. Those all to get fixed. Those are important issues. But I hope these sides realize while they're there, we have to fix a way to improve the on-field product. Because the on-field product is not get fixed. doesn't matter what economic rules they put in there. Because you're going to lose interest in fans. The game's current generation of fans only getting older. If you don't make it more exciting to get the younger group back in, you're going to have major problems about 20, 30 years trying to market this game. Something I hope they work on. We'll see what happens as the offseason progresses. But up next, we're going to go to our college basketball preview with Troy Moriello right after this. All right, we are back here on the Just and Suffering podcast, talking college basketball this afternoon. Joining me today, we are talking college who's the guy who I broke down all March Madness with, the host of the Seeing Red podcast, Troy Moriel is back. Troy, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's been way too long since we talked college basketball. I'm glad it's finally back. Yeah, it's been a long uh, offseason, very eventful, probably the most eventful offseason in terms of like player movement that we've ever seen. So, uh, it's def- we've definitely had a lot to talk about in the offseason, but I'm excited to be talking about actual games now and teams and, you know, conferences and things like that. That That's always preferred over the offseason talk. Oh, for sure. And I mean, one thing that's nice here is obviously we had a very weird pandemic here last year where teams went on pauses. We had some teams make the NCAA tournament playing just 13 games. But now it's like we're back on the normal calendar. We got all the normal preseason events. Like most of it's back in the right places. So I think it's nice to have all that back. Yeah, if if college football is any indication as to what we're going to see in college basketball, it it should be a pretty normal season. I mean, I I can't remember really any college football games so far this season uh, being affected by by COVID or anything like that. And obviously the stadiums are all full. Um, You know, the rosters are obviously a lot smaller with basketball, but, you know, hopefully we will uh, we will have a pretty normal season with, you know, all of these crazy environments throughout the country, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast. uh, all at, you know, full attendance, full capacity. Uh, I know I'm excited to get back to Madison Square Garden for, for uh, St. John's game. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's really a welcome sight to, uh, to have, you know, kind of the first normal college basketball season and what will end up being like three years almost when you look back uh, to the 2019 season. 
Yeah, for sure. And let's get started here with some stories we're watching here, because obviously it feels like there's a lot flowing around here, whether it's Mike Krzyzewski's last ride at Duke, the Gonzaga trying to win the title, UCLA bringing back everybody, all the transfers. Like, what are you watching for? What's got your interest early on? Yeah, I'm actually I actually want to touch on the the transfers a little bit. And, you know, that was just such a crazy offseason, like I mentioned up front. You know, so much player movement. You know, you look at these teams around the country. Obviously, you know, there are some, you know, UCLA's and Purdue's that bring back a lot of their starters. But there's also a ton of teams like my St. John's that only have like two or three guys from from the previous year's teams uh, returning. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how all of these teams kind of mesh together uh, at the start of the season when there are just so many moving pieces. I mean, you know, some you know, programs and schools are more used to that, like the Dukes and the Kentuckys with kind of the one and done era. And maybe some other programs aren't as used to that. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how everyone adjusts to that. And something else that I'm sure that we'll touch on in a little bit, you know, there in the past, it just felt like there was so many more big name college basketball, like fringe prospects uh, entering the NBA draft as guys that you know, may or may not get drafted, might be like a second round pick, might sign on as a G League uh, G League guy. It feels like a lot more of those guys return to school this year. And that's mainly because of all the uh, NIL thing stuff that they can do now. So, I mean, I'm curious to kind of see how that plays out, maybe more so in the future. Like, you know, can these guys, if they have great seasons, make more in college than they would have made, you know, playing in the G League for a year? So, that's something that, you know, in the offseason I noticed as well was there's just so many more guys that felt like coming back to school, uh, you know, because they now can make that money and, and obviously making their teams into, you know, national title or final four type contenders, you know, like UCLA, uh, like Illinois, you know, all, all of those type of, of teams that uh, maybe would have not gotten those guys back in the past. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the transfer thing is wild because look at Kentucky, for example. Kentucky is a team that normally brings in like eight or nine, like top freshmen, five, five star mm -hmm. guys. This doesn't, they bring in six transfers and some big names. You got Kellen Gray used to play at Davidson, Oscar Shibwe from West Virginia, Sal Salvier Wheeler, the guy, he's the assist leader from Georgia last year, came in, CJ Frederick from Iowa. I mean, they loaded on the transfer portal. I think mean, that's going to be the new recipe for success here because I feel like a lot of them realize, you know, Loading up with a freshman is not exactly a way of success. Teams experience win. I can go get the experience and they don't have to wait for a year to get them in. Yeah, I think that the, you know, the one and done era is like officially dead. And now we're into kind of the transfer era, right? Where, where you know, every year these these power five schools are going to be looking towards, you know, the mid majors or towards kind of the low majors or even towards other power five schools uh, for transfers. And that's going to be kind of the new thing, not not necessarily trying to fit in a lineup of of four or five freshmen, but maybe four or five transfers, like you just mentioned. So yeah, it's kind of like a shifting of eras in, in college basketball that now we're into the, uh, the transfer era. And building the NIL point too. Like one guy I could think of as a perfect example is like EJ Liddell, Ohio state. Cause he's a good player. He had a good year last year, nine times out of 10 in the past prior to NIL. He says, you know, I'm going to jump to the NBA now. I'm not going to get anything from staying in college. Now he can make some sponsorships, get some money, put it in his pocket. He's back at Ohio state and the sport's better for it. Yeah, and especially at a, at a big school like that, you know, when, when you are at a Big Ten, you know, big brand school like Ohio State, you know, you can probably make just as much money, or, you know, playing one year at Ohio State with all the endorsements that you can make now uh, that you would have made maybe playing in the G League for, for a year. So, yeah, it makes sense. It makes financial sense for these guys to come back. It's It's been a long time coming that they deserve to make this money off of their, uh, you know, their likeness and, and you know, advertisements and things like that. 
So I'm, I'm really happy that we're, we're kind of evolving with the times. Finally, the NCAA is, and we're finally, you know, giving these guys, you know, what they deserve, which is a right to make, you know, money off of themselves and the way that they play on the court. And as a fan, it makes the product much better because now you're, you know, you're not seeing as much turnover. You're maybe seeing more guys play two, three, four years, um, you know, in college, as opposed to all of the one and dones like we used to see for the past, you know, basically decades. So yeah, it's, it's a win-win all around, I would say. Yeah, because the NCAA, I think it's basically Supreme Court forced their hand this, but we got one with the, because they lost that case and I had to go to the NIL model. But the NIL model is probably the best thing that could happen in this sport because all your one and done kids, doesn't matter what the rule is, they're going to go after their one year and go to the NBA. But like your fringe guys who become college stars, like play, staying, they're going to stay now because they can make money. That's going to help this sport so much in the long term. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's so many guys, you know, my school with, with Julian Champagny, for example, would have been a guy who probably would have been like a second round pick this year. You know, he comes back, he, he's going to make some money off of, off of himself. He's going to, you know, be on a team that has, has, you know, uh, NCAA tournament expectations. And then hopefully he plays well enough. And now he's a first round pick next year. And that's just better for everyone. It's better for the kids as well, who, you know, like we said, would have been fringe prospects that can now play themselves into a first round, um, you know, grade in the NBA draft and make, you know, millions more than they would have made. So it's really just a win. It's a win for the fan. It's a win for the the programs that get these guys back. And it's mostly a win for these guys that they can not only make money in college, but you would think improve their draft draft stock as they get older. And as they, you know, continue playing at a high level in college. Yeah, for sure. Start going down some of these teams and conferences of interest here. I start at the top with Gonzaga. Last year, they nearly go undefeated. They get blown out by Bear in the title game. They have a lot of turnover. There's still a lot of big names there. I mean, Drew Timmy came back. He's probably the favorite national player of the year. Bringing Chet Holmgren, the top prospect in the country. Andrew Nemhart is still there. You turn around, Gonzaga's still number one. I don't think they're going undefeated again, but they're still a major threat. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to go under undefeated. Um, just looking at this non-conference schedule, for example, uh, they play Texas, they play UCLA, they play Duke, Alabama, Texas Tech. They got a lot of tough games in the in the non-conference, uh, I believe. So. You know, but like you mentioned, I mean, you have the player of the year, essentially, and you have, you know, if not the best freshman coming in, you know, a top two or three freshmen coming in uh, to the country. You know, anytime you have that, you know, you're going to be a nationally relevant team. But the story for Gonzaga is the same as it is every year. You know, their season is essentially November, December and then March. I mean, you know, January and February and then early March uh, when they're in conference play, they're really not going to be tested very much. Uh, I know BYU is going to be a team that that'll probably, you know, give them a test. BYU is always a solid program, but outside of that playing in that conference really isn't going to do much for them. So they need to test themselves in November and in December to get ready for March. Uh, and that's, you know, where their season comes down to, can they be a final four team? Can they get over that hump and win a national title? Um, you know, last year, obviously they got as close as you can possibly get. Um, and we're just beaten by a better team in, in the national title game. Maybe they had an off night as well. So, you know, for Gonzaga, yeah, the, the story of their season is is really, uh, you know, more so now, like November and December, and then how they play in March, ultimately in the in the uh, NCAA tournament. Yeah, for sure. I think also the team, obviously, out west, it feels like weird to say the west is sort of the powerhouse for college basketball this year. You got UCLA out there. They go to the Final Four in that miraculous run last year, and then they bring back pretty much everyone, the big ones coming back being Johnny Juzang, Hami Hawkes, and they add Rutgers transfer Miles Johnson. They get the five-star wing, Peyton Watson, and... Also, you could be have another run of glory for UCLA again, which is something we haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, first four to final four last year, and then they bring back that entire starting lineup. And like we were just talking about, um, 
you know, a, a, a guy, Johnny Juzang, who, again, maybe would have been a, a solid NBA draft prospect, but comes back now and is going to lead a team that has final four expectations for UCLA for the first time in a while. Um, you know, anytime you return your, your, your five starters, continuity is great in college basketball. Uh, that's going to be a positive. Like you mentioned, uh, they have, they have, you know, uh, a couple a solid recruit coming in as well. Uh, I think miles Johnson's going to be a really good player. I, he's a local guy from Rutgers, um, huge rim protector for them, you know, was a really solid piece to that Rutgers team. That was an NCAA tournament team last year. So yeah, I mean, UCLA was that run necessarily, you know, sustainable for them last year? Probably not, you know, nine times out of 10, they're probably knocked out sometime before the final four, but when you go to the final four and when you have all that experience and now you bring that entire lineup back, the expectation is going to be, let's go back to the final four. And uh, their preseason ranking reflects that. I think that, you know, this is the highest expectations they've had in a while. So it's, it's going to be fun watching Juzang. Uh, it's going to be nice having another late night team to watch, you know, at those like 10, 11 o'clock starts uh, during the, during the week. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how UCLA plays this season. Yeah, they always say packed out after dark is a thing for college football. I think college basketball is going to be just as good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We got some good matchups now with the with the Pac-12. Uh, I'm always a big Pac-12 guy. I'm a night owl, so yeah. I like uh, I like staying up for those Pac-12 basketball games. Uh, last year, the conference was 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 loaded, in my opinion. We had, they had a lot of they had a couple of really solid teams uh, in, in, in uh, last year. So yeah, it should be fun again this year. They've they've uh, you know got a, got a bunch of decent teams. Yeah, they crushed the NCAA tournament last year. You had four teams in the Elite Eight, and then you had, obviously, UCLA make the Final Four and push Gonzaga to the brinks. I see fun. It's a shame that that matchup couldn't happen in the regular season. They were talking about it for a while. They couldn't agree on a date. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, again, those two could be two teams that match up in the uh, in the NCAA tournament this year, So, and it would be late in the tournament, so, uh, so we'll see about that. Yeah, I think the other big picture storyline to watch here is that, obviously, Mike Krzyzewski announced over the summer this is his last year at – Duke, they announced story that John Shires would take over as a head coach after this year. And seeing what Duke does, Duke last year had a bad year. They missed the tournament, and they had all sorts of things go wrong. Now they got a strong recruiting class again. They have some interesting players come in. They brought in Theo John from Marquette as an impact transfer. So mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating to see what Duke does for Coach K's last ride. Yeah, um, you know, as has been a staple with Duke over the past couple of years, they have that really strong recruiting class come in. They have three top 30 players, I would say. Uh, Paolo Banchero being number one, and then Trevor Keels and AJ Griffin, the other two. Wendell Moore comes back, and like you mentioned, Theo John, the transfer from Marquette, who I'm very familiar with as a Big East guy, who uh, should be you know a solid rotational player for them as well. Um, Duke doesn't have you know two straight back to back bad years. I don't think uh, that just doesn't seem to happen for a program like that. Uh, I do. I think that they're necessarily a Final Four team. I'm not quite sold on that you know you got to see how these how these freshmen pan out but you know these are three of the you know better freshmen that they've had in a while probably since the zion rj barrett and um cam reddish year so you know duke is going to be duke i think this year i think that they'll be a uh, you know a, a safe team in the top 15 in the top 10 all year and then we'll see how they how they play in march uh and it being coach k's last ride you know i'm, I'm really curious to see like how much does that kind of like dominate the discussion around Duke all season long? You know, is that, is he getting like the tributes, like, like how we see in the pros, you know, when, uh, like when, when Derek Jeter retires in the Red Sox, you know, or D- David Ortiz retired and the Yankees are like honoring him. Are we going to see that in, in college basketball? I don't know. Like, are, like is, are, is coach K going to Chapel Hill and going to get like a standing <laughs> ovation or is he getting booed out of the building still? I'm really curious about that because like the, the college rivalries are different than, 
pro rivalries. So I'm, I'm curious to see the reception that he gets in some of these, you know, more heated rivalries. Like I said, like UNC or NC state or, uh, or Virginia, you know, like, like how does, how does the reaction go with, with those schools? Uh, you know, cause, cause you know, at home, obviously it's going to be a love fest and whenever they play a neutral site game, of course, like the champions classic next week is going to be, you know, all about coach K I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see his reception in some of these more, more heated rivalry spots. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see. Plus, the ACC is pretty good. I mean, you got North Carolina, it looks better. Florida State's always a threat. Virginia, they have a lot of talent and competition to have to deal with. Yeah, I, I really like Florida State. Um, maybe the best recruiting class they've ever had uh, this season. Matthew Cleveland's a top 30 kid, I think. Uh, and they got Anthony Polite back as well. A couple solid transfers. So, yeah, I really like uh, really like Florida State as kind of maybe like a little bit of a sleeper team to, to win the conference, to be honest with you. And then, you know, North Carolina is is North Carolina. Um, maybe necessarily like a down year for them last year, but not a great year for them. Uh, they have, um, you know, a couple of uh, solid players coming back. And then they get Dawson Garcia, the Marquette transfer, and uh, Brady Manick from, from Oklahoma, two really good transfers for them. So I think North Carolina, Duke, um, Florida State are probably like three of your better teams in that conference. Uh, Louisville, I think, is going to be pretty good as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll see about uh, we'll see about the ACC. But as always, I think the, the, the domination of the discussion in the ACC is probably going to be Duke and UNC. Yeah, I think let's go to the big conference picture now. Let's go Big 12. And Big 12 has two teams at top five with Kansas and Texas. Starts, Chris Beer moved from Texas Tech to Texas and did a great job loading up all the transfers there. Mm-hmm. Kansas has an elite team. They bring in Randy Martin from Arizona State to be the headliner of it. You mm-hmm. got teams like the Oklahoma State gang without Kay Cunningham. You have Texas mm-hmm. Tech trying to reload. That's a deep league, as always. It'd be a lot of fun to see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah, maybe the deepest league in, in college basketball, maybe outside of the Big Ten. Um, I'm going to start with Texas. I don't think that any school in the country, when you talk about the, you know, the transfer madness that went on with all this player movement, I don't know if any school added as much talent as Texas did uh, this season. You look at three all conference players, Marcus Carr, Trey Mitchell, and Timmy Allen. Um, Marcus Carr averaged almost 20 points at Minnesota last year. They bring in Dylan Dusu from uh, Vanderbilt. And then as I know, a guy like Christian Bishop from Creighton, who, uh, who, you know, has, has was really one of the more underrated players in the Big East last season. You know, that's like five really solid players when you combine them with Andrew Jones. They have a, a, a solid a recruit coming in as well. So Texas, I think, like improved their roster more than anyone did last season. And they were a good team last season, but I think that they improved their roster more than maybe anyone in the country did in terms of the transfer market. Like you mentioned, Kansas, Kansas is going to be a top, you know, five team bringing in Remy Martin's huge for them. Uh, they also bring in Coleman Lands from, from Iowa State and Joseph Yesifu from Drake. And obviously getting a guy like Agbaji back is really big for them as well. Um, and then the national champions, Baylor, you know, I'm not as high on Baylor as maybe most people are. I think, I think that they just, they have so much talent that they have to, to replace. And, you know, they do have a, a solid recruiting class coming in. I believe um, one of their recruits, Langston Love is out for the year though. Um, they get James Akinjo on the transfer market from Arizona, but you know, I, I'm just, when you have to replace that much talent, I'm not sure if I'm as high on Baylor maybe as, as, as other people are, but I still think they will be a top, uh, top, you know, three, four team in the conference. And then, and then, um, you know, a top 10, 15 team nationally for sure. But yeah, the, the conference, in my opinion, really is going to run through Texas and Kansas this year, as you said. Yeah. Those two games are a lot of fun. I also want to get to the big 10. You mentioned probably, just as good a conference, you know, not as deep. I think, obviously, you had the yeah. teams at the top with Michigan and Purdue, basically 1A, 1B, in my opinion. You got Illinois 
did well. Maryland did great in the transfer marketing, adding Kudus Ahab and Fats Russell. Michigan State's mm-hmm. always a threat. Indiana mm-hmm. with your with your former guy, Mike Woodson, coming in the mix here. That was a mm-hmm. fun mix here. I think a lot of interesting stuff going on in the Big Ten. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think the Big Ten, as you said, it runs through Michigan. You know, Hunter Dickinson coming back. Uh, they get Devontae Jones, who is the the player of the their conference player of the year, Coastal Carolina. And that recruiting class is just loaded Four top hundred guys. I think, you know, two guys in the top 20 or something like that. Um, you know, Juwan Howard's been a fantastic recruiter at Michigan. The conference, in my opinion, is going to run through them. But then, you know, you look and, and as you mentioned at the top, it's, it's just loaded. Uh, Illinois is another team that I think is going to be really good. Kofi Coburn, I know that he's suspended for the first, I think, three games of the year. But uh, he's going to be, in my opinion, you know, a candidate for the player of the year nationally this year. Um, and a guy like um, a guy like um, Andre Corbello is going to be really good as well for them. I think that he's kind of a candidate to leap up and be, you know, a nationally relevant type player for them. Uh, you know, he was he was solid last year, but I think he can you know turn into so, someone who's kind of on the national radar now, uh, Corbello. And then Purdue. I think Purdue is is. Honestly, if I had to pick like a, a sleeper team, quote unquote, I know that they're, you know, nationally ranked and everything like that. Um, if I had to pick like a like a, a team that I think could could maybe surprise some people and win the national title or make the final four. I think it's Purdue. I think that they returned so much of that team from last year, you know, and, and again, continuity is just so big in college basketball. When you return, I think it's like six guys that, that averaged eight or more points a game last season, basically their entire starting lineup. Um, and they have a couple of solid uh, recruits as well. I think Purdue is, is, you know, I don't want to say like a sleeper team because, because there are like final four buzz with them, but I think that they're a real final four contender this year. Yeah. I love Purdue. I think they're my pick to win the big 10 because they basically bring everybody back. That team was peaked early last year. They came a year early because I thought this year would be their year. They, I think the top three in the big 10 last year made a tournament, lost mm-hmm. the first round, but Jay mm-hmm. Nivey be a star this year. I mean, Jay Nivey dominated for the USA under 19 team when he went out for the FIBA world cup this year and that era. And, He's a comeback. He's got. I think he's the Big Ten Player of the Year. That's my personal prediction. Really? Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting pick. I, I would probably pick Coburn, but but I I don't disagree with that either. I think that you know, like I think that we agree on Purdue. They're going to be really good this year, and I, I think that you know, if it's not this year, it's like when they've had some really good teams in the past. Remember uh, Carson Edwards a couple of years ago? They've had some good some good teams. It always just seems like it kind of falls apart in the tournament for them. Uh, I think this is the year that Purdue is is a Final Four caliber team that could um you know not surprise some people but 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 make finally reach that final four yeah and i'll also throw out i think obviously maryland i watch because obviously that team was so good last year they had bring in the two uh-huh. impact transfers to be good and michigan state i'll point out they might not have a star tower player anymore not aaron henry's in the nba and mm-hmm. but they are i think a deeper team now they got an impact good recruiting class coming in they got the northeastern transfer tyson walker at matt christie a yeah. five-star wing i think that's team right now just outside the top 25 I will mark this down right now. They're going to be in the top 15 by February. Okay. All right. I, I, I like that as well. And another team that I think is maybe a little underrated right now in the polls, I think, is Ohio State. You yep. know, you talked about EJ Liddell earlier. I think that they're like, yeah, they're 17th in the AP poll right now. I think they're better than that. I think that they're, you know, the Big Ten is so loaded, so it's hard to say like, oh, they're a top, you know, top two, top three team in the conference. But, you know, they got EJ Liddell. They got a, a transfer from Louisiana, Cedric Russell, who averaged like 17 points a game last year. So, I think Ohio State is another team that could maybe sneak into like, you know, a, a final four type caliber team, um, you know, but the Big Ten, like we said, at the top between like Michigan, Ohio State, Purdue, Illinois, uh, Michigan State, as you said, there's just there's so much talent at the top of the Big Ten 
uh, that it's, it's just going to be a bloodbath again this year. Yeah, another conference I think is going to be a big bloodbath is your favorite conference, the Big East, where we have, obviously, Nova brings back pretty much everyone, including Colin Gillespie, who's in the sixth year after mm-hmm. getting the COVID wave after he tore his ACL last year at the end of the season. You got Xavier, who I think is going to be a big, big force top of the league. UConn, St. John's. We'll save St. John's for a minute. U- uh, Seton Hall. Like, There's just so much like battle of attrition going on in the Big East this year, I think. Yeah, the... I mean, I think Villanova right now is is like the clear top team until proven otherwise. Um, but two to like six in the Big East is is literally just a toss up. I mean, you could put those those five teams in a hat, shuffle a hat around, and pick them out, and and I'd be okay with any order that you put them in between uh, my St. John's, Seton Hall, UConn, Xavier, and probably Butler as well. Those five teams, I, I mean, it's it's anyone's guess what order they finish two to six. Uh, I think that the Big East is probably like a five or six bid league this year, um, you know, and and I, I do think that, like you said, I mean, there's just there's just so little separation, I think, in like the middle of the pack in the Big East. They also have a team like Creighton who lost its entire starting lineup, but has, you know, a really solid recruiting class coming in with, I believe, four top hundred players. So who knows if, if those freshmen are able to, you know, put it all together. Um, you know, you got Shaka Smart at Marquette. So the Big East is going to be deep again this year. Like I said, I think that it can probably put five to six teams in the NCAA tournament. We'll see. It runs through Villanova as, as we all, you know, it, it seems to every year, but you know, St. John's could challenge them. I think Connecticut for sure could challenge them. I, I'm not as high on Connecticut as other people are, but if they put it together, they certainly can. Xavier, I actually am really high on. I know Fremantle is injured, um, but but I think when Xavier's at full strength, they're a really talented team as well. And Seton Hall is always in the mix, you know, at the top half of the Big East. So it's going to be a really, really fun year for the conference. I think, like I said, two to six is just is, is anyone's guess. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see how that plays out throughout a throughout conference play. Yeah, UConn's fascinating because I think with them, you look at sort of like what, what's happening at Oklahoma State where they lost the one big player of the mm-hmm. NBA where Oklahoma State lost Katie Cunningham and they lost James Book Knight. But the rest mm-hmm. of the group is back. The rest of the group is very good. I mean, you got Adama Sanogo, RJ Cole, very veteran-heavy group. I feel like they will, they're not, they can get in and win around. I don't think they're going to be a second weekend team, but they should definitely get there. Yeah, and, and you know, when they, uh, when they, uh, uh, when they were at without, um, I'm blanking on, on, uh, Book night. his name a uh, book night last year yeah. last year when they were without book night last year you know they got that experience playing without him um you know they they had you know a solid couple couple of games without him you know that those guys kind of got to see what it's like i don't know how much that really carries over one year to the next and they really were not that good without book night last year they frankly you know they were an nit team without him last year so it's curious to see like how much does does playing without him help and are those guys able to step up? I don't know if UConn necessarily has like a, a known number one guy right now. Like every other, you know, every other one of those kind of top Big East schools, in my opinion, that I just mentioned, has like one guy who you can say like the team's going to run through him. I don't know if UConn necessarily has that. They have a lot of talented guys, but I'm curious to see kind of how that works out for them. Um, and I'm curious to see how they play without Book Knight because it did not look very good last year. Now they did get that experience, but... I'm curious to see kind of how that transfers over to this year because it's it's kind of like boom or bust for them. I think that you know their boom is is really challenging Villanova for the uh, for the top of the conference. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about your team, St. John's, because obviously they made a good push at the end of last year. They could not sustain it in the Big East tournament, fell short of getting to the dance, but they bring back a lot of guys. They had some interesting moves in the transfer portal. What do you think about St. John's prospects this year? Yeah, um, 
you know, they, they lose, they lost a lot in the transfer portal. They brought in a lot in the transfer portal. If you look at all of the guys that they lost, I believe they lost seven guys to the portal. Uh, all seven of them transferred down. Not one of them transferred to a uh, power five or power six, you know, however you want to slice it uh, uh, school. So, and, and basically, you know, a bunch of the guys that they bring in, when you look at a guy like Aaron Wheeler uh, from Purdue, when you look at a guy like Montez Mathis from Rutgers, um, Steph Smith from a really solid program in Vermont, Tariq Coburn from a solid program in Hofstra, Joel Soriano, who was uh, one of the better players in his conference at Fordham. You know, they, they, they brought the talent that they brought in. I think it's kind of a general consensus is a lot better than the talent that they lost uh, in the transfer portal. And then, the two returning guys are really the, were the two most important guys in the team last year. And that's Julian Champagne, who I think could be the big East player of the year this year, uh, who I think had a real case for it last year as well. And then Posh Alexander, the big East freshman of the year, the big East defensive player of the year, and a guy who has the potential to be a all, all big East player. So, you know, when you bring back really the two most important parts of your team last year, they bring in, you know, all these transfers who, in my opinion, are all upgrades over what they lost. Uh, I think that, you know, the NCAA tournament is a realistic goal. I think that, you know, for a program like St. John's, where you're not necessarily, you know, competing for national championships, you know, you want to be in the conversation for a Big East title, you know, for either a regular season or a conference uh, tournament title. And you want to try to win a game in the NCAA tournament. And I think that, you know, this year is really as as good a shot as, they, as they've had in, in the past, you know, decade at doing that. They've had some good teams over the year that, that have underachieved. But I think that this is is really in terms of coaching, in terms of depth, in terms of the, you know, star power at the top, maybe the most complete team that they've had uh, since I started watching them, you know, over a decade ago. Yeah, certainly a lot of fun. And it's been a lot of talk about the big boys. Let's talk about some little guys, too, because the mid-majors are probably making us fun. We'll take Gonzaga out of the mix. We already talked about them. We know that they're basically mm-hmm. not – they're a mid-major name only. They are – a power po- program like everybody else's here. Well, that's some t- my majors that you keep your eye on. For me, I got a couple, obviously. I think I'm going to throw out for a few safe Bonaventure, which basically brings mm-hmm. like, everybody from last year's team that ranked for the first time since 1971, the preseason poll. They can win mm-hmm. the A-10 very easily. Loyola Chicago won one of those secret scrimmages against Wisconsin. That's his, mm-hmm. like, a guy raiser. And I think mm-hmm. like the, the pile of the mountain was always a lot of fun, too. Yeah, yeah. And talking about St. Bonaventure, I mean, when you when you have – I think it was like five double digit scores and they were, you know, you return all of them. Uh, that type of continuity is, is a recipe for success in a, you know, in a smaller conference. I know that they play in the A-10, but, you know, in, in kind of a mid-major conference or like a, you know, not a power conference necessarily, when you bring back that much, when you have that much continuity, when you have uh, that many seniors on your team as well, like that's a recipe for success, uh, you know, and, and to be, you know, a top 25 type team when you're a mid-major, like you said, Loyola Chicago, um, you know, their brand has just become, you know, a team that's always kind of hanging around They're you know, always a tournament team. It feels like, uh, since they made that run and, and, you know, they're going to be probably, I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the top 25, uh, at some point. Uh, I think BYU, I kind of hit on them a little bit as well. You know, they're always around BYU. They're, 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 they're always, you know, kind of in the conversation, you know, as kind of like that, that second team or second tier behind Gonzaga in that conference. So, I think BYU as well could be a team that is an NCAA tournament team for sure and doesn't necessarily challenge Gonzaga, but is like the clear number two team in that conference. Yeah, well, I'll throw out there just a local angle here. I think I honestly fascinating to see this year because second year Rick Patino, last year they barely played because they had lots of COVID outbreaks. They make the tournament, mm-hmm. they get they scare the hell out of Bama in the first round. And then mm-hmm. this year they bring in 
two high impact transfers in the American. They bring in Elijah Joyner, Tyson Jolly should be playing big minutes for them. They have a lot of guys back and they put, they've up with a pretty big non-conference schedule They're playing Alabama. They have a lot of intriguing matchups coming up. They play Seton Hall again. So I think we can see how year two of Iona goes for Patino. Yeah, and, and when you talk about Iona in that conference, they're they're always going to be the most talented team in the conference, especially now with, with Patino and the talent that he's been able to bring in in terms of recruiting. Uh, they're going to have the most talented team on the floor, you know, in conference play. Uh, yeah, it's curious to see how they play in the non-conference. They will obviously have a tough non-conference schedule, you know. And for Iona, I think, you know, the goal is is probably to be, you know, a, a solid enough conference champion because you do need to win that conference to get into the tournament. You know, can you be a, a solid enough conference champion to maybe be like a 13 or a 14 seed and not be, you know, a 15 or 16 seed where you're playing a number one or a number two seed uh, in the tournament where you have to play kind of a top 10 team? You know, can Iona, you know, push themselves up enough to maybe that that second tier to where they have, you know, a real legitimate shot at winning an NCAA tournament game as opposed to facing, you know, a one or a two seed, like like you mentioned uh, last year in Alabama, that's it's just going to be, a you know, that they're really mismatched. So. Uh, it's going to be curious to see how the season plays out for them, for sure. Yeah, let's do a couple of things to wrap up here. Let's do some sleepers here. You mentioned you said you like Purdue as a Final Four sleeper earlier. Who else do you have on your sleeper radar? A couple of teams. So maybe I put more stock into like Ken Palm rankings as as a other more than other people do, I guess. But I got a couple of teams. Florida is one for me. Uh, Florida is 25th in Ken Palm, and they're unranked. And I don't even know if they got votes in the, in the AP poll. Uh, I think Florida's got a, a solid team. You know, when you look at, they bring back Colin Castleton, uh, they bring in two transfers that averaged uh, 15 more, 15 or more points per game. So I think Florida is one uh, that, that can be, you know, I don't want to say like a, you know, a final 14, but maybe a sweet 16 team. And I think that they're going to be a top 25 team. And another one, Texas tech, Texas tech is 12th in Ken Palm right now. And they're unranked as well. Um, I, again, I think that Texas tech, they bring back Terrence uh, Shannon, they bring back Kevin McCullough, they bring back Marcus Santos Silva. They lose Chris Beard, their head coach. Um, you look at the transfers that they bring in. They bring in a, a conference player of the year in Davion Warren uh, from Hampton. They bring back Kevin O'Banner, who was big on that Oral Roberts team. So, I mean, that, like those are some solid transfers as well. Uh, I don't I don't get why Texas Tech is not ranked. I, I don't think that they're as good as, as Texas and Kansas and Baylor, but I think that they'll be, you know, a solid team in the Big 12. And, you know, I think that they have a chance to be like a five or a six seed that can make a sweet 16. So I think Texas Tech and Florida are kind of like my two main, main sleeper teams this year. Yeah, I think my I, my two main sleepers, first I'll throw out the fact that I'm fascinated to see how this Memphis experiment goes here with Penny yeah. Hardaway mm-hmm. and see how he does because he got the two big recruits. He got Jalen Duran and Monty Bates and he basically playing, doing the new approach of like player first model. If you read the Sports Illustrated article about his success recruiting at Memphis, we'll see. That translates to on the court. This team won the NIT last year and brought in these two guys, so I think they can make a big jump. But in terms of sl- pure sleepers here, I think I was mentioning the Biggie Xavier because people forget this team was eight and zero last year, and they were in the polls before they had a massive COVID outbreak. They bring mm-hmm. back pretty much everyone from that team back for this year. So I think with health, with better luck, with better performance, they're going to be. I think my pick for number two, the Biggie's behind Villanova. I think the ACC. Virginia Tech is not getting talked about enough because that team, mm-hmm. like Purdue, was a year early. Bring like everybody here. They also bring in Storm Murphy from Wofford, as a big impact grad transfer. Reunited mm-hmm. Mike Young after they had, went, took Wofford the tournament and won a game for a couple of years ago. So I think Virginia Tech is going to be top three in the ACC. That's my personal projection. 
Yeah, I, I like them as, as well. I really like what Virginia Tech is building out there uh, as well. And, and what you said about Xavier, you know, I, I do think Xavier is is maybe I, I would probably pick them like third, to be honest, in, in the Big East. Um, but I, I could see them challenge. They're another team that I could see uh, challenging Villanova in the Big East. They won't have Zach Fremantle for a while. But, you know, when Big East play starts, you would assume that he's healthy. And uh, if they're healthy, I think, yeah, they have a top top two or top three team in the Big East for sure. They they underachieved last year. I don't think that there's there's any way around it, um, not making the tournament. But, you know, Xavier's another program that that doesn't go that long without making the tournament. They haven't made the tournament in a couple of years now, so uh, we'll see how they play. One more team I want to just throw out there is Rutgers. Uh, I think Rutgers, you know, they get back Ron Harper and they get back Geo Baker. Those are like their two best players, I would say. Uh, you know, they didn't do a ton on the transfer market, but what Steve Peichel's uh, built out there, you know, they're not going to be, a, I don't think that they'll be, you know, a, like a sweet 16 type team, but I could see them being ranked at some point, you know, the big 10, like we said, it, it's such a gauntlet. So they're going to have so many opportunities for big wins. Um, I could see them, you know, kind of being on level with what they were last year. No one's really talking about them. Um, you know, they're, they're, metrics and everything are not that high i think that they're only like a what are they in the ken palm like 60 something so they're really not that high they're not getting a whole lot of love but i think Rutgers can be a tournament team again and a team that maybe advances in the tournament and is kind of like on level with what they were last year yeah for sure let's wrap it up here we were gonna be playing teams now i'll tell you some games to watch because i feel like the most underappreciated like sporting calendar in all all sports is the non-conference play of college basketball games because it falls right in the peak of the, of the holiday season you have the nfl getting down the stretch you have the nba starting i will don't check out a lot of these non-conference games so give me some of your favorite non-conference events that you think people should look at yeah sometimes it's overwhelming right there's there's so yeah. much to watch around this <laughs> yeah. time of year that you kind of for some people college basketball kind of gets uh forgotten about uh you know everyone is going to love the champions classic that obviously kicks off the year with those four programs duke kentucky kansas michigan state you know, all four are going to be or all four are ranked. All four are going to be in the you know national conversation this year. But how about the uh, the Hall of Fame tip off in uh, in Mohegan Sun? This is in uh, November. Look at the, the the four teams that you got in this. You've got Villanova, Tennessee, who we didn't talk about, but I think Tennessee is another kind of sleeper. You know, maybe top you know Sweet Sixteen type team. North Carolina, who's always there, and then Purdue, who we both like as as one of the best teams in the Big Ten. Those are four really really good teams. Four teams that have, in my opinion, like legit Final Four hopes. Uh, maybe some more than others, but I think all four of those teams, it wouldn't stun me to see any of them in the Final Four at the end of the year, uh, all in one tournament in, in Connecticut. I might I might have to make the drive and go to that term, that uh, Hall of Fame tip-off because it's at Mohegan Sun, so not that far of a drive. Um, though That's a really, really solid tournament in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's a bracket too, which means they're going to get multiple games between yep. these teams, so that's going to be a lot of fun to see how that plays yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so. exactly. Who, who knows the matchups that you're going to get? Uh, yeah, you're, you're you're essentially getting what four really solid team games. If they, I'm assuming they play a consolation as well. That's four really good games over over a two day stretch. Yeah, absolutely. And I also um, throw out there. I mentioned the CBS Sports Classic out in Vegas in December. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. You got UCLA, North Carolina, Kentucky, Ohio State. Those are that's a hell of a field. Not a bracket, but those are two great games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's always a, a fun one. Those those teams and uh, you know, like we said, those are all all teams that that have you know maybe now Final Four hopes again. You know, UCLA, as we said, is going to be one of the top teams in the in the country. So yeah, that one will be very fun as well. I think that one's a little bit later in like December, so that's that's a little bit better because it's it's kind of like separated from maybe the uh, the main ones that you see around Thanksgiving time. Yes, yeah, Saturday before Christmas, that one. 
Yeah. Uh, and which, which is a lot better. Cause I feel like, you know, you're, you're kind of like, it's not as overwhelming at that point when there's like a million of these, of these, uh, of these uh, MTs or whatever they call them. There's a little bit less of those. So it, I think that might get a little more attention maybe. Yeah, so as uh, a fact correction on my part earlier, we say Gonzaga and you say do not play. They are actually going to play in uh, Vegas on November 23rd in the Good Sam Empire Classics. That's going to be a oh, hell of a okay. game. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even see that. Um, oh, yeah, I got it right here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah Gonzaga. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that'll be – I mean, that's right now the top two teams in the, in, the, in the nation. We'll see. Yeah, but those are two teams, again – would that shock me to, if that's the, the uh, you know, national title game, you know, three or four months from now or five months from now? Absolutely not. So, yeah, that that's going to be a really fun matchup in a couple of weeks. Yeah, two more I'll throw out. These are all these are both around Thanksgiving weekend. The battle for Atlantis, you got a pretty deep bracket field there. You got Michigan State, Loyola, Chicago, Auburn, UConn, Syracuse, VCU, Baylor, and Arizona State. It's a lot of heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one that one that kind of disappoints me as well, just, just looking at this. The, the Maui Invitational, it's it's not in Maui, it's in Vegas, and the the field is just not what you would normally expect from the Maui. Maybe like, I, I mean, when we were growing up, and 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 you know, in the in the past couple of, of years, it feels like the Maui was like the tournament that everyone wanted to go to. Yep. You look at the bracket this year; it's what Texas A and M, Wisconsin, Butler, Houston, Oregon, and Chaminade's always in it. St. Mary's and Notre Dame, not a, not a very you know like deep field whatsoever not a whole lot of matchups that i'm really that interested in to be honest i'm a little disappointed in the maui this year well i think to be fair i think that's also a big difference in going to vegas going to hawaii i think it might be one where it's like okay you know like well we'll go go next year we can actually go to hawaii yeah Yeah, so hopefully they can bounce back next year with with a big field yeah the last one i'll throw out is also around the the espn events invitational down in orlando and i know it's top heavy because you have kansas alabama in there but there are a lot of talented mid-major programs in that event Iona's playing Alabama, the opener. They get the rematch yeah. title game. Belmont and Drake, two high-quality mids. North Texas mm-hmm. made the tournament. Dayton is good. And yeah. if you're looking for potential bracket busters, that's the event you want to keep your eye on. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and I believe Belmont is another team that that everyone is, is really high on this year. I don't know much about them, but I know that they got votes in the, in the top 25. So, yeah, that, that should be another uh, good tournament for sure. Yeah, so basically in between your turkey and Thanksgiving weekend, make sure you look for a lot of these tournaments. where a lot of them tend to pop up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't just, you know, forget about college basketball in, in November. I know a lot of people tend to, to only get into college basketball in like February and March, but if you watch it in November, you will certainly be surprised with how uh, entertaining the product is. You know, you don't need to be a super fan to, to get into college basketball in November. No, that's the one thing I can't say. A lot of people like, oh, I'll turn into college after the Super Bowl's over. And then like they, yeah. they miss everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's so many fun matchups in, in the non-conference play. And then, I mean, like, what you know, I'm not a huge NBA guy, but I guess a lot more people are interested in the NBA in like December and January. But uh, personally, I mean, yeah, I, the 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 style of basketball and college basketball is, is way more fun uh, to me, and it's just a more intriguing product. And it's it's what I watch 24 seven basically from uh, from November to March. So I'm looking forward to it again this year. All right, there you have it, Troy. Thanks a lot of time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be follow social media, keep up with your St. John's podcast, the Seeing Right Path. I saw your seeing your season preview podcast just dropped. Yeah, yeah, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Troy Moriello. Uh, that's Troy M A U R I E L L O is the last name. Uh, yeah, I do the the Seeing Red podcast, cover St. John's basketball. Uh, we just did our our season preview yesterday, or, or it was dropped this morning uh, with Zach Braziller of the New York Post. So yeah, like we said, should be a fun season for the Johnny. Should be a a tournament season. Hopefully, you know they they can win a game in the tournament. Hopefully, they can challenge for the Big East title. So. 
come along for the ride if you're a St. John's fan or if you're a Big East fan, and we're going to do a podcast every week on them. So really looking forward to that. Absolutely. Troy, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Thanks, Mike. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for week number nine today on the podcast. Joining me, a diehard Giant fan. We've heard him rant plenty of times. You're a longtime listener to this podcast. Justin Diaz is here. <laughs> Justin, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. I'm Thanks again for having me on. I always enjoy doing this. Yeah. I feel like as a Giants fan, we are in Groundhog's Day. Here we are, two and six again at the middle of the season. It's just more of the same. It's great. So much fun being a Giants fan these days. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Have you been tempted to go learn how to ice sculpt yet? <laughs> ice sculpt? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand the reference. Is that, is that something Bill Murray did in Groundhog Day? You learned how to ice sculpt. Oh, geez, geez. Oh, man. <laughs> I went right over my head. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm tired. Uh, I'm going to use the excuse that I'm training for a marathon and I'm just always tired, but that's a lame excuse. That's a, yeah, I should, I should do that. Geez. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a sad time. It's been sad time. It's not even new. And I've just come to the point of acceptance as a Giants fan. I, I go, I've gone into every season for the last three, knowing we're going to be terrible. So it's not even disappointing anymore. It just fulfills my expectations. Yeah, a little inside the baseball here. People listen to the podcast. Justin texting back after the loss to the Atlanta Falcons in week three saying, get me on the podcast, get me on the podcast. So it's a matter of finding the spot. <laughs> and then I saw they had the Chiefs come up. I'm like, this is going to be an epic like meltdown here from the Giants in some way. And I was correct because the way they lost that game is inexcusable on Monday. Oh, it's just terrible clock management. The Chiefs look horrible on a, on a not a necessarily related to the Giants note, but Mahomes doesn't look right. I was watching with a friend of mine, Jeff, who you know from high school. He he said, and I kind of agree, Mahomes looks so bad that you have to question if he's injured, but that's a different story. The game was theirs for the taking, and I, I hate football cliches, but it's very applicable here. Bad teams find ways to lose, and, and that's just what the Giants have been now for a long time. And Using for a coach that preached accountability as his big thing at the press conference, and he just has no understanding of clock management, and rather just then saying, Oh, I messed that up. It's just objective. I messed up. I need to be better. He blames the headsets. Lies, like blatantly lies. And it's not even disputable. It's black and white. He lied. He wasn't just saying it was this game. He's been saying it's all season. And the NFL immediately came out and said, no, that's not true. There haven't been any reported issues, and which is actually kind of funny because the NFL, the one time they'll give a forceful response is when you criticize one of their business partners. But they, Joe Judge is pathetic. I mean, in case you're wondering what I think of him, he, he's pathetic. He's a clown. Yeah, I mean, the headset thing, I saw that. My, my eyes started bugging on Twitter. I said, that's the excuse he came up with. And you're correct. The league came out on Tuesday and said, we never heard from the Giants during this game or this year about issue with the headsets. And it was clear that Joe Judge is lied to cover the fact that he made some terrible clock management decisions. And you combine that with his strange play calling down near the goal line where they run a two-yard out on third and two and kick a field goal instead of going for a touchdown. You can point back to that as one of the big reasons they lost this game. The conservative nature, the clock management, the lack of discipline. like It just makes you wonder what exactly the Giants saw in him a year ago when they hired him. 
I mean, I, I totally agree. It's yeah. I forgot that I, it, there's so many bad things that happen. I forgot they kicked the field goal on the four yard line. That's incredibly, it's just a weak move where you don't have confidence in your team, which I understand the giants are bad. So I don't blame them for not having confidence, but you have to go for a touchdown there. I mean, I, I'm, I haven't read anything about the analytics, but I'm certain they would support the fact that you're supposed to go for it on that. Um, what they saw in him, I, I don't know back then, but now I know there's really, I, I still know giant fans that support him and say, well, the roster stinks. They're decimated by injuries. That's true. But I've noticed a lot of giants fans conflate reasons or there are legitimate reasons for why someone might, might not be performing, but they also, if you're evaluating someone like a head coach or a position, like a quarterback, for instance, they have to show you positives to support the fact that you might think they might be good in the future. What does Joe judge do? Well, their offense stinks and is uncreative. Their defense is middling and uncreative and uh, it's not great. It's not terrible. Last year was very good. It's regressed significantly, but it's still not terrible. The clock management's terrible. They're undisciplined and they lose every close game that they're in. So where is he showing you promise? I, I can't think of a single thing that he's good at other than when they hired him, he was articulate and good at saying, preaching things that every football fan wants to hear. Discipline, aggression. We're going to fight until the last second. Great. I could say that. I could, you could hire me and, and I'll say those things. doesn't mean I know what the hell I'm doing when it comes to coaching. Yeah, that's certainly a fair point. I mean, we heard all the losses about all oh, the discipline. We're running the laps and I want to be a disciplined oh, football God. team. And then they've lost two games this year, basically because of penalties, because you had the Washington game where you had, I forget who jumped off sides on the field Dex, goal. Dexter team. Lawrence jumped off sides. He jumped yeah. off sides. And then they have a pick of Mahomes on that free play there. And he turns out another giant jumped off sides. Chiefs go down and score a touchdown to win the game. So that's two games you could say right there. And I love Joe Judge loves saying right there, but. Right there, you had two games. You could have won, but now you don't. And this is a team that you feel like, given the games that they had, they could easily beat 500, but they're 2-6. and six. I think speaks more of the coach. Oh, absolutely. And, and I I'm a, I don't know if the analytics support me on this, but I'm a big believer. A lot of these penalties, offsides, this and that, it does come down to a lot of luck if you think about it because these are individual players making mistakes. Yes, your team could be disciplined as a whole, but if someone jumps off sides because the quarterback had a good hard count, that's it's a bad play by the player. It's a good play by the quarterback. Unless you have a repeat offender, then a lot of times it comes down to luck of the draw in my mind. So if a coach's calling card is discipline, that's not going to be a good coach more than likely. When, when was the last team that you said this team disciplines their way to the Super Bowl? Never. <laughs> they had a great offense. They had a great defense. Or maybe they had good at both or they had a great quarterback. There's never been, oh, yeah, the Patriots of 2001 were just a great disciplined team. No, they had a great freaking defense. Or the, the Chiefs from two years ago, historically good offense. The Bucks last year, there's a well-rounded team. No one's ever said, yeah, this team's. I like their chances in the Super Bowl because they don't commit a lot of penalties and they try hard. It's, it's bullshit. I, it's, it's just this old school football mentality. It fits perfectly with what the Giants want and what their fan base wants. Old school, punch them in the mouth, run the football. We stink. I'm, I'm so, it's, it's literally, it's freaking Groundhog's Day with this team. Just backwards thinking, hustling backwards. We're never, we're never innovative. We don't think forward. We, we wait until we give every player and coach we ever get every excuse under the book rather than just look at them critically and saying, you know what, maybe they do have excuses. 
But at the same time, on the flip side, they haven't shown us anything to prove that they're actually good anymore or ever. We did it with Eli the last couple of years of his career. I, I was a huge Eli Manning fan. He was a fantastic player. He, he delivered us two Super Bowls. Those last few years, he stunk. And everyone, including the Giants organization, well, the line stinks, the, this stinks, or there were these injuries. But if you watched him, he also was bad. He had excuses, but he was also bad. Daniel Jones. I, I'm I'm on the fence about Daniel Jones, but I think he's at best average, maybe solid. He's clearly not a future star, but same thing. He the line stinks, the skill players aren't great. It's kind of true, but at the same time, he all if you watch him objectively, he hasn't shown anything to make you think he's a future star. It's a repetitive theme with the Giants and their fans. It's don't evaluate things critically, look for the excuses for why they might be bad. And just give them that out rather than actually say, you know what, this guy isn't working out. Let's get something new. Yeah, I mean, the, the point of the coaching is great because you look at my team this past week. I mean, we had that starting quarterback, they have a number one receiver. The Jet coaching staff came away for Mike White for all people for 400 yards to beat the five and two Bengals at home. And that was a great win for the Jets. Like, when's the last time the Giants really had a win like that? You came out like, wow, the Giant coaches have really had us on at that game plan today. We came up with this brilliant win. That, that's a great point. I, I don't remember. I mean, maybe Jones's rookie year, they had that game against the Bucks where he came in and lit, lit the world on fire. And that was the last game that was actually impressive. But I, I Dan Orlovsky said, and it really stuck with me. He, he watches a ton of game film and he loves watching film, but he hates watching the Giants because they're so archaic. They don't do anything creative. You know exactly what they're going to do. It's very repetitive and it's almost never where they have a nice play where you say, wow, that was a nice play call. That was a nice scheme that they, the player won the the battle against his uh, matchup because the scheme got him open. They never do. It's just, it's the player has to execute well and they don't do anything creative. And it's, it's just, it's been that way for as long as I can remember. It's just, I mean, I keep saying it, but it's, it's, it's groundhog's day. It should be called giants day, Mara, John Mara day. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of John Mara, I mean, he came out recently, gave Joe Judge a vote of confidence. He didn't give one to Gettleman, which makes me think that the current mode of thinking of, jo- of John Mara is if we don't make the playoffs this year, which is more likely than not, that I'm going to fire Dave Gettleman, Joe Judge will stay, and then Joe Judge will be picked a new GM. And just to me, is this more continuing to kick the can down the road on the potential blowing it up that you guys need to do? Back, this happened back in 17 when they were interviewing the GMs, and Lewis Riddick came in there and said, You guys need to rebuild. And Dave Gettleman came in and said, no, we could win right now with Eli Manning, and John Mara took that optimistic view, and now you've been paying for it ever since. So I would be terrified of Joe Judge picking the picking the GM and trying to win now, and just continuing to kick the can down of what needs to be done for this team. Oh, 100%. That is what's going to happen at best. And I say at best because it wouldn't shock me if they keep Gettleman again because the Giants have been famous for winning two or three meaningless games towards the end of the season. So their record's 6-10. and 10 instead of four and 12, or this year there's 17 games. So the Maras, uh, you're actually Dan Dugan, who's been on this podcast before, he wrote something at the, like, that just perfectly put it. They, they squint and tilt their head and make something terrible look okay, rather than evaluate it critically. So yes, I, I do, if I had to guess, they'll fire Gettleman, keep Judge, which is just awful, because what it's, I mean, the reality is they'll probably stink again next year, so then you have a coach who's had three bad years in a row. So you basically have to fire him. And then you have a, then you're going to have a GM who just finished his first year. He's going to hire a new coach. Then what ha- I mean, this is kind of crazy to think this far ahead, but that's what you have to do. So let's say you fire judge after next year, 
you have your new GM going into year two, hires a new coach, they stink again. Then what do you do? Like it's just, it's it's insanity. And but the reality is that is probably what they're going to do because that's the Giants' way. Because and a lot of people make this mistake in thinking continuity by itself leads to success, and they point to teams like the Browns and say, "Well, look at them; they've cycled through all these bad coaches and GMs." And well, yes, they cycled through bad coaches and bad GMs as they should have, because if someone's bad, you don't just keep them and hope that they get better. Yes, there are certain times where teams have pulled the plug too soon, but we're talking about guys that are obviously and objectively bad. Like David Gettleman, it's a disgrace that he was let he was kept last year. This year, it's just it, it's pathetic, and it, it makes you. It was like almost it's Isaiah Thomas territory with the Knicks, where. where it, it, you want you start to wonder what is this relationship behind the scenes like is there something is there like a such a strong personal connection that they just feel bad firing him which yeah he was sick and that's terrible but he's also horrible at his job it's long past the time for him to go and honestly it's upsetting to me that they'll probably let it frame it as a retirement it's almost it's personal with me at this point with David. <laughs> I, I I want him to be fired in public. I want him to start breaking down, crying. I want him to, like, just like I don't want anything terrible to happen as a person. Something inconvenient, like he's on the highway late at night and his his tire blows out and he's stuck there for like twelve hours and and he can't get he has no cell phone service. So then the next day, like he's inconvenienced majorly. I. In all seriousness, it's sports. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Sorry to say that in your sports podcast. I'm as big of a sports fan as it comes. But I I don't like him as a person at this point, which is I acknowledge is very irrational. So I, I want something, or maybe I don't know, like he's at a he's at getting a cup of coffee and his credit card got shut off and he's embarrassed in front of a long line of people. Something very annoying, but not to alter his life. But that was a mini tangent that probably isn't gonna make a lot of sense when you listen to it. But it made sense in my head. It was entertaining. I'll give you, I'll give you that. <laughs> I'm glad. But long story short, yes, I do think they're going to keep Judge, which is a terrible mistake. They need to blow everything up at this point. They've been bad for so long. I don't think – I still think there's a holdout of Giant fans that think we're just this away and we're just this small little alteration away. We, it's not a fixable problem where you just plug in a hole. It's a process problem. We don't have the right processes in place for evaluating talent, figuring out how to construct a roster with the salary cap. And, and just we don't understand roster building from the down from the floor up. And that needs to be blown up. Everyone that's brought in needs to be new. And the Maras need to stay the heck away once they figure out those right people. And that's not going to happen if they keep judge and then just the continuity. It's continuity doesn't work if you don't have the right people. Yeah. And. The record speaks for itself. Since the boat game, they've had the worst record in the league. That, t- that tells you all you need to know. But, yeah, the, you built, everyone loves Bill Parcells. You are what your record says you are. And it, it's, it, I, it sounds so simplistic, but it's true. Like the, Joe Judge went 6-10 and 10 last year and 2-6 and six this year. I think people think it's admirable somehow when you lose games close. If you lose a couple of games close and you finish 8-8 eight and eight or something or 7-9, and nine, maybe even 6-10, and 10, you could say, you know what? If they just did this and this different, maybe next year it'll improve. But we're doing it again this year. So if you keep losing close games, that's not good. Eventually you need to win games. But now Judge is, what, 8-16? and 16? That's And he's probably – I would have guess the Giants won four or five games this year. 11 wins in two years isn't cutting it. And 
there's no reason to be optimistic about this guy. It's I, I'm beating a dead horse, but move on. He stinks. I it's it stinks to have to cycle through in our third coach in two years or less, but you made three bad decisions in a row. So you have to live with it. It's it's unfortunate and but it, it's demonstrates how bad the organization has been. Yeah, and you mentioned the upcoming schedule. I mean, they play a rough one so far. They have a lot of games down the stretch they could win. They have Tampa, they Philly twice. They have the Dolphins. They have the they have Washington. They have the Bears. This week is the Raiders too. I think the Raiders is winnable because the Raiders come in here. They have the distraction of the tragic Henry Rugg situation where he's stupidly driving 156 miles an hour drunk and kills someone, and now he's off the team, and that's going to be a major detriment to their focus. I think this is a spot here where the Giants could easily win this football game. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that you're, yeah, that's a, that's a horrible story all around, but absolutely. That's, I, I totally agree. It's, it's very feasible. Um, I hate being at this point as a fan, but I always root for them to lose. I just don't want there to be any reason for them to think, well, you know what? We kind of turned our fortunes around. We went seven and 10 or six and 11. So let's just stick or Let's just try it one more time. Is one more time keeps turning into another one more time. And then before you know it, there were five straight one more time seasons and we've wasted years of our life. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but I, the giants were a big part of my life. Like where I genuinely looked forward to watching them and talking about them and dissecting the games with my friends. But I, I meant to say were, because while I still watch them and think about them, I just I'm past the point of really caring anymore because it would be insane for me too because I know with a certainty that they're going to stink and it's it's going to upset me tremendously if I have any sort of hope. So I just go in knowing they're going to stink and it's that's it. So I'm at the point where yes, I do root for them to lose every single week so it'll change because yeah, they'll win a meaningless game here and there and then still finish out of the playoffs. What good does that do? Because I know it's not going to get better the next year. Yeah, let's get to the picks. The reason why you're here. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a plan. Yeah. Mutual friend of ours, Anthony Cowley, was here last week. He went one and two on the week. He took the Bengals laying the points against the Jets. He lost that one. He, he had the Bucks laying the five against the Saints. Lost that one. He did have the Cowboys laying a two and a half. So he got that one correct. So one and two on the week for Anthony. Oh, I haven't hope Anthony's doing well. It's been years since I've spoken to him, but I will improve upon that. I will go three and oh, and I will beat you this week. I take a lot of pride in these picks. I know you do. I had a rough one last week. <laughs> I, w- I went oh and three. Oh my God. It, it was awful. <laughs> Shoot. Who did you pick? I had the Buccaneers. We had a family pick. I'll be on that. We had the minus five. I had the Chargers okay. laying five and a half against the Patriots. And then I lost that one. And I had okay. our good friend Dan Martini's Colts laying the point and a half, and Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz, me out of that one. Oh, Jesus. That was a just a that was one of the worst throws I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I, awful. Left handed out of the end zone. Brutal. It was brutal. So on the year, Teen Challenge had a rough one so far. They're 8 15 and 1. I have not done much, but I'm only 11 and 13 on the year. So it's been a challenge this year, but we're going to see if we can get some. Dueling three and zero weeks here going, so we're gonna start the picks now. Justin, as the guest, you can go first. Who are we going with? Pick number one. Uh, I am taking the Ravens minus six at home against the Vikings. I just think the Ravens coming off a bye week. Uh, I feel like they're a very strong team. I know they they had a really bad game against the Bengals, so I, I think that they they should be bouncing back. Lamar, I think, has been playing fantastic football, the best of his career, even better than his uh, MVP year. 
so I like them against the Vikings. Yeah, I think uh, that Patriots, I, I think oh, that sorry, go ahead, yeah, I think that Viking pick. I think that's one I can get I can get behind one picking against Minnesota because last week they had the spot of all spots to win. They're playing the Cowboys at home without without Dak Prescott. They finally yuck up that game to Cooper Rush. I mean, I can't pick the Vikings after that one, so I, I can't blame you there. Right. I, yeah, that's that's really a bad loss. Like when you're a team like that's fighting for a wild card and, and you need every win you can. That's and I just Kirk Cousins is just the ultimate stat, like misleading stats guy, maybe in sports. Like I, I, I've talked myself. There's been I think every year I fall. Oh, Kirk Cousins has good stats. And then you watch him. And he misses every big throw he needs to make. Yeah, sure. Where are you going to pick number two? I'm taking the Patriots minus three and a half in Carolina. Um, I'm not full. I see a lot of people have really come around on the Patriots saying, oh, Belichick, he's a genius. He's back. I'm not fully buying it. I do think the defense is good. Mac Jones, I still think he's really a game manager, which is fine. Like, he's accurate. I, After seeing how the Panthers played against the Giants, maybe I'm biased, but Darnold is just awful. And I think the Patriots are going to just shut him out. Uh, I, I, I see the Patriots winning that game pretty easily, actually. I think the line's low. Yeah, I think the one counter on that, I will say, is it sounds like Christian McCaffrey might play this game. He's basically a very, very different team than the one the Giants saw. And I saw McCaffrey-led Panther team give my Jets fits the first week. So that's a stay away from me. That's my personal opinion. Fair. I, I just, I'll never count on Christian McCaffrey to do anything until he shows he can stay healthy for a string of games anymore. I hate to say it. It stinks. He's one of the best talents in the league, but... I'll never, him coming back is not something I can count on. I know he's going, he's probably going to play, but he's to say he's going to be 100% or even play the whole game. All right. That's my thought on that. All right, let's pick number two. We're going to pick number three. I'm taking the Bengals minus two and a half against the Browns. I know the Bengals are coming off a loss against your Jets, but I just think the Browns are on the precipice of becoming a dumpster fire. Baker looks awful. Beckham, I mean, Beckham has just not worked in Cleveland, but that whole situation is a distraction. I, he's, I'm certain, I'm pretty sure he's not playing at this point. I think the Bengals will bounce back and, and take advantage of the Browns' that dysfunction. Yeah, I think I can see the lie behind that pick. I know the Bakers playing her definitely hurts the Browns. I just, for me, after what the Bengals did last week, I want to see it again before I go back to the well with the Bengals. That's my personal thought. That's fair. That's total sense. All right, so your picks are on the board. I'm up now. Pick number one, I am actually going to go to your team. I'm going to take the Giants getting the three at home against the Raiders. I think the rug situation, tragic as it is, I think this is a second big distraction for the Raiders this week. A lot of questions they don't need about the situation. And the Fly East, they never play well at MetLife. They almost lost to the bad Jets last year. They lost to the Jets there in 19. And the Giants have a habit of winning these kind of games that you don't really want them to win, and they're going to find a way to show up and win this game heading there by. You can give the idea they're going to suck the fans back in for the second half, and, oh, we can make a wild card run. We have an easy schedule. So I think that's what happens here. You're going to take the Giants at home as a home dog getting the three, pick one. I mean, I, I actually think that's a smart pick. Because, yeah, the Giants are kings of convincing the fans and ownership that they're, they're on the verge of turning it around. I do think the Raiders are far better, but... The Henry Rugg situation is just awful, and I could see that easily being a distraction. All right, pick number two. They burned me last week. I'm going to try it again because the line is so low for some reason. I'm going to go back to the Chargers, laying the point and a half against the Eagles. I do not think the Eagles are good. Detroit just got awful. Philly had trouble moving the ball against competent teams. I think the Chargers had a little bit of rust going off that bye against New England. I think they come out angry this week. They also play at four in the East Coach. is actually an advantage for them because they have to play at 10 a.m. body time. I know you love that term, but 
I think this game, they're going to come back out here. They're going to come out firing. I think they're going to blow the Eagles out of the water. And for some reason, only a point and a half. So if they win close, I get it. So give me the Chargers laying the point and a half pick too. I like that pick. I, I agree. The Eagles aren't good. I think the Chargers are, I still think the Chargers are pretty darn good. I love their coach. I think he's going to make adjustments, get Herbert back on track. And I always, I always love when people pick up against the Eagles because they're my least favorite franchise in sports. I hate them. I think their fans are all terrible people. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'll always support someone picking against the Eagles. All right, let's pick number two. Pick number three. I'm going to Monday night. I'm taking the Bears getting six and a half points against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I know the Steelers have won two in a row. They have not scored many points doing that. They only picked up 15 against the Browns last week. Chicago's a cable defense, and I just can't lay seven points with the Steelers at home. I know the Steelers are betting better, but they don't score. That's a lot to lay for a team that doesn't score points. The Bears managed to put up 22 against the Niners last week, so I think the Bears will keep this close. I'm going to take all the points of Chicago, pick three. Yeah, I, I get the logic. I think Big Ben, I'm pretty sure I've played with kids in a flag football league that have a stronger arm than Big Ben at this point. They, they can't score. I, I won't I won't buy the Steelers as a contender this year. I don't typically like picking teams on the road that I just don't see winning the game, regardless of the line, but I, I get with that. That's my counterpoint. But uh, I, I agree that the Steelers are really struggling offensively. So that that is kind of a big spread. All right, so to reset the picks of the week, Justin has gone with the New England Patriots laying three and a half in Carolina against the Panthers. The Ravens laying six at home against the Minnesota Vikings and the Bengals laying two and a half at home against the Cleveland Browns. I have gone with the New York Giants, a three-point home dog against the Las Vegas Raiders. I've gone with the Chargers laying one and a half in Philadelphia against the Eagles. And last but not least, on Monday night, the Chicago Bears laying, actually getting six and a half and against the Steelers, those are your picks for week number nine on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Next week on the picks, I'm going to bring back a good friend of mine, Jersey Jarky. We're going to talk about his Chargers. So we'll see how that Charger Eagle pick ends up working out for me. All right. Well, I hope it works out because I always root against the Eagles, but I still want to beat you. I hope that's the only pick that works out because the competitive <laughs> side is I want to go three and oh, and I'll take you going one and two. No offense. It's not personal. Yeah, competitive nature. Yeah, I don't think the challenger side has gone three and zero since week one. Well, hopefully that changes this week. It's going to. It's going to. I'm confident. All right, and one last piece of business here. We're gonna do the knockout pick. I'm gonna give out my knockout pick on the podcast. Last week, I took the Chiefs in the knockout pick, so that worked out pretty well. You know, the Giants tried to make it interesting. Yeah. Oh, so you're doing a survivor pool in the, in this like uh, on the podcast essentially? Yeah, I get my knockout pick every week. So it's I I started week one. I said. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep going. So I've not had an incorrect pick yet. Oh, wow. And Sven, I hope you did a real survivor pool. I was making it this far is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've had a good run. It's gone San Francisco, Cleveland, Carolina, Buffalo, Tampa, uh, LA Rams, Cardinals, and now the Chiefs. This week's pick, I'm going with the Dallas Cowboys at home against the Broncos. Sounds like Dak Prasick will be up to go in this game. He's there. They are not losing at home to Denver. Yeah, that's a, that's an easy one. The Dallas looks different this year. Um, I know there's been many years of people saying that, but they look very, very good. I think they're probably a top four or five team in the NFL. So that's a very safe pick. And Denver, I mean, they traded Vaughn. It looks like they're not even compete, playing for this year. So I think that's a, that's a safe pick. All right. So that's my pick. Not going to look at the week. We'll see if I make it to week 10. And Justin, thank you for coming on here. If you want to find on social media, I know you're on the Instagram now. You want to get that handle out. Sure. It's uh, 
man, what is my Instagram? I you put me on the spot. I know it. I think it's Justin F Diaz underscore. Does that sound right? It does sound right. I, yep. Justin F Diaz underscore. That's me. I'm an avid poster. That's not true. I've had five posts, uh, but thanks for having me on. I really enjoy, always enjoy talking about football and uh, venting my feelings for the Giants' misery and incompetence. It's like it's honestly free therapy. So you could probably charge me like <laughs> for, for the therapy sessions. It's well worth it for me. And then I really do appreciate you having me on, Mike. No problem. For the people who want to follow just on Instagram, you follow for the stories. There are a lot of good stories. <laughs> Thank you. It's mostly just me running the occasional going out story. Uh, yeah, that that's yeah. Feel free and uh, thanks again, Mike. The two minute drill. All right, two minute drill time. I get you update on this scandal in the NHL right now involving the Chicago Blackhawks, and it's something that has not gotten a ton of attention from the mainstream media because it's hockey. In my opinion, that's wrong. So I want to try and catch up what's going on here. I'll give the credit to CBS Sportsline, cbssports.com. I put together a good timeline for you on an article that was out on Friday. I'll link to it in the show notes. But this whole thing starts back in 2010. This is the year the Blackhawks are going for the Stanley Cup. They're trying to break their drought. I point, I believe it was 48 years. They had practice roster player named Kyle Beach. He has a sexual encounter with assistant coach Brad Aldrich during their series of the conference, San Jose Sharks Western Conference Finals. The coach claims a consensual encounter. Beach said it was not. That the coach probably threatened Beach with ending his career, breaking his legs. He didn't act like he enjoyed the encounter. So it happens. A couple of days later, Beach tells one of the assistant coaches on the Blackhawks, uh, Paul Vincent. Paul Vincent runs it up the food chain to the Blackhawks higher-ups, tries to be there for Beach. Beach, who was an honest at the time, came forward a couple of days ago, admitted it, and said Paul Vincent was one of the few guys that actually was trying to look out for him. On May 23rd, 2010, there's a meeting with the Blackhawks organization. It involves President of Hockey Operations, Al McIsaac, Team President, John McDonough, GM Stan Bowman, Assistant GM Kevin Shevoldayoff, Executive VP Jay Blunk, Head Coach Joel Quenville. They all talk about the incident. They collectively as a group decide, we're going to ignore this. We're going to sweep it under the rug because we don't want bad publicity and distraction right now because we're trying to win the cup for the first time in 48 years. They win the cup. A day after the cup win, all of the reporting makes sexual advances towards a 22-year-old intern grabbing them inappropriately. Does this bother the Blackhawks? No. Brad Aldridge gets his name on the cup. He gets the chance to resign with severance pay, a playoff bonus, a championship ring, a day with the Stanley Cup, and getting to participate in all the festivities of the parades and whatnot. Later on, Aldridge goes on to assault three more people, including a high schooler after leaving the Blackhawks. He eventually serves nine months in jail as a registered sex offender. Fast forward to this year in May, Beach sued the Blackhawks, leading to an independent investigation, exposed how the team waited three weeks to act despite their own team policy saying that we react quickly and swiftly to matters like this. Bowen and McKay are the only two guys from the front office meeting in 2010 who are still in the organization. They've resigned. Joel Quenville, now the coach of the Florida Panthers, he resigned. The organization was fined $2 million on the NHL. And the only guy left for the job now is Chapel Dayoff, who is the GM of the Canucks. At this point, it seems like he's going to hold on to his job because... He was a junior assistant at the time, and the NHL seems to be taking a stance that he was not in a position to make something happen for all he knew. Something did happen, but we'll leave him alone for a minute. The fact here is, 
an NHL team, a professional sports franchise, decides to bury a coach, sex assaulting a player for over a decade. Think about how messed up that is. They knew this happened. And they did nothing. They decided their priority was winning the cup as opposed to doing the right thing. You can also point some blame in Chicago here for what happened with Aldridge after he left. You can make the argument here that those three sexual assaults he committed could be tied to him because no one knew what he actually did for the Blackhawks. No one did. They buried this for over a decade instead of acknowledging that they allowed a crime to happen. And all of them are putting out statements of how we're sorry, we can't believe what we put him through, it's inappropriate. They are not sorry at all. They're sorry they got caught. If Kyle Beach did not sue them, if he didn't come forward here, they would have all kept living their lives and said, "Wow, we won a championship, we're great. They wanted to have nothing take away from their beloved Stanley Cup title. They made their choice. They knew what Aldridge did in the Western Conference Finals. They said, we can't disrupt what's going on here. We have a chance to win the cup. Not only does he win, he gets his name engraved on the cup, and that's a stain on the Stanley Cup right now. And the NHL is also a joke here. They claim that they gave the Blackhawks a $2 million fine. That's appropriate response for them. It's the same league that years ago fined the Devils $3 million for circumventing the salary cap. So in the other words, the NHL feels that Covering up a sexual assault is not as bad as trying to cheat the salary cap. Put those two wrongs in perspective here. The NHL can't do it right. And all this is getting no coverage from the mainstream media because it's hockey. If you change the sport, if this was an NBA player this happened to, it was happening in a Major League Baseball clubhouse, it was happening in an NFL locker room, this would be all over the mainstream media, 24-7 coverage. We'd be getting all sorts of legal analysts, all sorts of crazy speculation about what's going on here. The NHL simply right now trying to basically usher everyone involved out of the room and say, okay, you know what? All the guys who did this, they're out. No Stan Bowman, no McIsaac, no Quenville. They're all gone. Blah, blah, blah. We're gonna, don't look over here. We're taking care of it. That's not good enough. The NHL needs to take a look here and see what really went on here and realize that they made a mistake. $2 million is not anywhere near enough to find the Blackhawks. There should be more severe consequences for that organization. Will the NHL do anything about it? We'll see. And with that, I'm going to end the show this week. I want to thank my guest, Troy Morial, for hopping on, giving you a 40-minute deep dive into the world of college basketball, getting ready for the season to start next week. I also want to thank Justin Diaz for doing the Week 9 NFL pick. Certainly a lot of fun. And he had some thoughts. You want to go stuff like this podcast, including my look at the New York Knicks and their exciting start of the season. As of recording time, they are 5-2. and two. They're up near the top of the Eastern Conference, playing exciting random basketball. Check out the blog over justsendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, our favorite podcast platform. You find all the episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star brings well. They help make the podcast even better going forward. Also follow my YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. The video version of these chats with Troy and Justin are up there to check out as well. Also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that will do it for this week's edition of the podcast. Coming up next week, we're going to have our NFL midseason report, the Week 10 picks. Also have a Sky Guys episode coming next week, Season 3 of Rebels, and more. Until you have a better week than Colts fans. Let it, let it.
This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.